Hier komen wij in vreemd. You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We're recording the show on Indigenous land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Red Flag Radio is proud to be a revolutionary socialist podcast where we talk about politics, history, theory, with people who are activists, with people who are participants in the struggle. My name is Rose Ward. I'm the host of the show. Liam Ward is the producer of the show. And we're really appealing for your support for this podcast as we continue to broadcast in these extraordinary, never been seen in my lifetime circumstances. Um, we have a Patreon account, patreon.com forward slash red flag radio podcast. If you want to donate even just a couple of dollars a month, that would be really appreciated. We're trying to organize under uh, very challenging circumstances um, as political activists. So all of that money goes towards t- helping us organize, helping to put out this podcast. And we really appreciate all of your support and we might even at some point get around to doing something special for Patreons. Me and Liam might give you some extra content if you're lucky and if you give us enough money. So um, thank you for that. This episode in the midst of the crisis um, that has really unleashed itself, been unleashed upon the world as a result of the health crisis um, caused by the Corona-19, COVID-19 virus, the huge impact on workers in particular um, has been something really sort of profoundly obvious as the days and the hours um, pass on this. So on this show, we wanted to talk about the impact on workers and what workers are doing to organise resistance. And we're joined by two people who are very uh, well practised organisers of industrial resistance and they are um, the industrial organiser for Socialist Alternative, Jerem Small, who's been on the show before and long-time union activist, first-time Red Flag Radio um, and the Victorian Socialist Federal candidate whose face can still be seen on St George's Road. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the show. Um, I will also say that we're recording this on the morning of Saturday the 21st of March. So things may have changed and they are changing very quickly by the time you're listening to this. But we appreciate you spending your time in this moment um, with us here at Red Flag Radio. Okay, Jerem, let's start with just sort of how big of a crisis is this in terms of workers' rights, um, the impact on workers as we try to come to grips with all of this? Well, it's one of those ones we seem to need to invent a new vocabulary, um, like colossal, unprecedented, uh, when you have uh, the major banks and the United Nations talking about a recession of previously unparalleled dimensions. Um, basically, with uh, the dislocation, dislocation, like oh, that's falling short as well. The world economy has just stopped stone cold dead. And it's starting to fall, and we're in the very early stages of that. So we've seen, obviously, uh, mass sackings um, have you know started immediately just in the last week. You know, thousands upon thousands of hospitality workers, tourism, uh, arts workers, like all of the venues, all of them mean no shifts. Like 
and this is just the very early stages. We've got to be really clear as well, like the ruling class see this as an opportunity, not just to impose the catastrophic cost of their neglect on the working class, but also to introduce far-reaching structural reforms to cement even further their rule. So people might have seen a uh, an article that was going around from the Financial Review, the Australian Financial Review, a couple of days ago, the headline was, let's put coronavirus to some good use. It quotes Rahm Emanuel, uh, uh, Barack Obama's former chief of staff, saying, never let a good crisis, sorry, never let a serious crisis go to waste. And they spell out an agenda of lower taxes, uh, slashing supposedly excessive regulatory red tape, uh, reducing uh, supposedly adversarial workplace regulation and so on. So it's not just class war as usual for the bosses. It's um, extraordinarily intensified. And as I say, we're just in the, the very, very early stages of this uh, worldwide crisis as we speak. So, um, yeah, it's staggering. Kath, in terms of the concerns of workers in Australia, um, what are some of the biggest things that you would point to right now? I mean, I think the kind of the first obvious one is the question of health and safety. So we're hearing about, you know, hospital workers who can't get access to, to masks. There was a story of a doctor in a public hospital who was asked to go uh, and speak to um, the family of someone who they knew was infected with COVID-19. And when she asked for a mask, was told they didn't have one and said, oh, it's all right, you've probably already got it anyway. Like, there's just not this seriousness being taken um, there's other, you know, there's obviously a lot of workplaces that are workplaces, but also have huge swathes of, um, you know, people and the public coming through. You think of the retail stores, you know, the, the shopping, the, the grocery stores at the moment, um, public transport. It's a whole series of these, you know, massive uh, workplaces where workers are finding that they're really having to fight hard for, for basic cleaning, to get workplaces cleaned at all, to get workplaces cleaned to the appropriate level. Um, it's a you know, pretty terrible state of affairs when, when you think about everything we know about this virus and the need to increase hygiene. The other question that's obviously like a massive health and safety question, but is, you know, employers avoid talking about it as a health and safety issue, is the question of paid pandemic leave. Because we there had, there was in the media a few days ago a story about a Tasmanian worker who was a casual went to work because they really couldn't afford to stay at home. There weren't any help or provisions at the time, uh, so they went to work and put put other people at risk, which is what's going to happen. Um, and there's a lot of focus on casuals. I think these workers are particularly vulnerable right now. But there's also issues for permanent workers where some workplaces are saying that people are going to have to exhaust their sick leave or their annual leave. When unions fought for these forms of leave, it was never conceived of that this would be things that people would be forced to take in some kind of global pandemic. You know, people people are going to need time away from work that's not, um, you know, just in total quarantine or not just when they're sick. It's important that people do hold on to those rights that we've won in the past um, and not just, you know, have them you know, rolled over uh, by this, you know, international health crisis. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I think people, it's sort of like a every day people realise more and more the extent of the scale of this thing. And I, I even in the, at the beginning when there were people campaigning and saying, oh, you know, people should be given 
14 days paid leave so they can self-isolate. It's like it, it's at this point it goes way beyond 14 days totally. of anything. Mm-hmm. This is going to be weeks and weeks of people yeah. um, having uncertainty at work. Um, so, yeah, all of that stuff is unprecedented and you're right. Like the current conditions that people have are completely inadequate to deal with it, so they all need to be changed. Liam? Because, um, well, the, I mean, even with, even those workplaces where we have been able to win uh, the pandemic days, pandemic leave, as you say, Roz, you know, it's it's 14 days. A lot of them have been, a lot of the employees have been specifically limiting it to that. So in my workplace, we won uh, pandemic leave for everyone, including casuals, but it specifically says only for two weeks. The idea that this thing is only going to last for two weeks is just lunacy. But then when you think about, well, okay, what if it does roll out, not just for weeks and weeks and weeks, but months and months and months, the idea that like for, for capitalism, the idea that workers should be paid months on end when they're not actually producing anything or doing any work or, you know, doing sort of minimal work uh, is like anathema to them. They don't want that at all. They're not going to tolerate that. It's absolutely like counterpost to their whole fucking society's functioning. Uh, and so really, when you think about that, we've got literally we're fighting for our lives because the alternative is to say, okay, well, if, the, if, they, if they're not prepared to pay pandemic leave indefinitely forever, like month after month, then at some point they're going to have to force us back into these workplaces where we know that our health is at risk. You know, so in that sense, we are quite literally in a fight against capitalism and that is a fight for our lives. Our and when people are um, people are listening to this and they're thinking about their safety at work right now, I know, Jerem, you've been looking out for um, what protections or what rights people could, could, could be claiming about this because obviously it's not a situation that we've been in before. Are there some of those that you can run through for people listening who might, even if they're just on their own, telling their boss or demanding or stopping work until certain health and safety measures have been put in place. And what are some of those things that people can point to? Yeah, well, uh, I've got to, if you scroll down to find it, it, everyone who's listening to this should um, get online, jump on Facebook and go to the Workers Organising Resistance Against the Pandemic uh, group. Uh, which is a um, you know a, a bunch of us have set up um, and it's basically a you know an organising space but we'll talk a bit about that in a bit but there's a document I put on there um, that sort of goes through some of the legal rights that people supposedly have and it doesn't look too bad you know so long as it's actually on paper there's a nice uh, section of the work health and safety law that applies in most states of Australia saying a worker may cease or refuse to carry out work if the worker has a reasonable concern that it's going to expose them to a serious risk uh, risk, uh, in terms of health and safety. So that's pretty sort of cut and dried. Of course, the rights that workers get are the rights that are written in law. The rights that workers get are the rights that workers manage to fight for and win on the job. But the point of knowing some of this law, and in that document there's stuff from uh, WorkSafe guides and so on, is to be able to give the workers around us a bit of confidence that um, we have the right to not put ourselves in the way of a deadly pandemic. To the maximum extent that we can, we should be getting out of that out of its way. And not only that, we have a public health obligation to every single other person in this community to reduce the spread of that. Um, and to the extent that we can use the um, feeble workplace rights that 
uh, Australian workers have to enforce that, to uh, to reorganise work to make it safer, uh, to uh, you know, for instance, work from home is one of the things that uh, WorkSafe has in their guideline. Um, to close counters um, is another uh, recommended measure of Victorian WorkSafe. Um, uh, like to, to refuse unsafe work and to, to shut places down if it's non-essential work um, and if it, it can't be done safely, um, you know, we should be trying to shut that down. Now, just waving around a piece of law obviously isn't going to be sufficient to do that, um, but it can be an organising point and, um, like, uh, you know, the, the, there's been several instances that I know of at universities, um, in schools and so on, uh, in cafes, which I think we're talking about soon, of just people, um, you know, implementing these health and safety measures. So nice to know the law, good to be able to quote it to bolster your workmates, but it's really time to, to start talking to people um, and getting organised. Yeah, so the Organising Space Facebook page, Workers Organising Resistance During the Pandemic, and there's a discussion group that goes alongside that. And also we're now um, running a Twitter, which is W, capital W, capital O, Resistance, um, to find us on Twitter, just getting started there. But um, within hours, really, of setting up that page, we had dozens of stories coming from workers who aren't just taking um, what the boss is telling them to take. And it's pretty incredible um, the pressure that people are under to continue to work in unsafe conditions is intensifying, I think, and people are still organising themselves and their colleagues to refuse to do that and to start to think about, um, you know, casuals organising together, hospitality workers, all, all of those kind of things. So, Kath, what are some of the stories that have inspired you most coming out, coming from that page so far or, or ones that you think people could um, replicate in other places. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, one of the things that I feel like it is worth saying is that there are some absolute horror stories, um, like the story of one workplace where a manager had come into work, had just you know, had recently come in from overseas, was showing cold and flu symptoms. All of the things that we know uh, means you're high risk uh, for having COVID and should be getting tested went into the workplace, touched all these things, interacted with all of these staff. The staff there had to, you know, it's pretty brave, casual staff had to like force their own boss to leave the workplace and then had to fight for all of the staff who'd interacted with him to be able to, to go home and self-isolate. Um, and there was a you know big fight about trying to get pay for those people. There is like outrageously an education workplace that has put up signs around the workplace in opposition to workers who are trying to organise to increase health and safety measures, to move to online where possible. And they've gone up and put up signs saying business as usual, uh, which yeah, you know, disgusting. is just like it, it, it's sort of unbelievable that in the, the face of this that they they want to be, be so open um, about their attacks. But there's also been some pretty cool stories of resistance. So in one transport workplace, workers um, took wildcat action to occupy a boss's um, offices until they were provided with hand sanitizer that they were being denied. Um, there was, you know, wildcat actions throughout um, universities where uh, rank and file activists managed to get together and, you know, shut down. Well, actually, Liam could probably talk about this much better than I can, but you know, shut shut down um, some of their their schools and move to online teaching. 
there were um, university work, workers who worked at um, like student service desks who just refused despite, despite the advice from unfortunately the, the union at the time and also obviously against the uh, recommendations of the university when they saw their health and safety was at risk when students were sneezing on people uh, they started refusing to have that that face-to-face contact which is um, you know really impressive and and you know when when one uh desk at a university did that it then spread um to other places um at a hospitality workplace you know workers have got together and have fought for takeaway only um you know and have you know forced the bosses to to sanitize their workplaces we know of a call center where casual workers are organizing are having 15 minute stop work meetings almost every shift you know they brought the this the big ceo came in thinking that they could kind of quell um, the resistance going on there, but instead the CEO very much regretted coming in and just spent ages being grilled um, by the staff there and they're continuing to, to ramp up their campaign um, to ensure that, that casuals uh, get some sort of job security. Um, and there's sort of, you know, in, in the scheme of things, they're, they're sort of minor, but given that there's so little lead being taken from anyone, uh, it was quite incredible really in just setting up this page, the kind of flood of requests that we got to join, the way that people are taking it upon themselves because they know they can't trust the government, they know they can't trust um, their employers and are finding ways to organise um, with the people uh, in their workplaces to fight um, to protect their economic security um, and their very direct health and safety. Could I add to that as well? Just, well, I mean, Kath referenced the uh, cafe where um, workers basically took over the whole, um, you know, sanitation system. And for a lot of hospo jobs, you know, out the back maybe isn't too bad, but no one really worries about the front of house where customers are coming in and sneezing and all the rest of it. So it's a big deal for workers to, like the boss instituted some systems that just weren't working um, and didn't have any effect. And it was the workers that came up with their own plan and implemented it in that particular workplace um, in terms of saying, okay, uh, like we can't do much about what punters do in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the dunnies. We'll have our own staff um, toilets and, and keep that, you know, to the maximum hygiene extent possible. Uh, as Kath mentioned, having stuff all in takeaway containers so people didn't have to deal with, um, you know, potentially plates or whatever that had been sneezed on. Like it sounds like little things, but in the in the face of a deadly pandemic, workers organising in this way will save lives. There was one of the things which is a big problem is the Morrison government mm-hmm. and to be honest, yeah. the Andrews government and probably other state governments as well, this whole business as usual keep calm and carry on. Last week, you know, we had Scott Morrison saying, yes. well, I'm going to the football, you know, and well, you're yeah. an idiot, aren't you? And the, um, you know, the Grand Prix was, was about to go, go ahead. To the same Hamilton. football game, by the way. Mm. <laughs> yeah, like Lewis Hamilton, a multi-million dollar uh, race car driver, at least had the honesty to say, I can't believe we're here. It just shows that cash is king, that money rules. And that is the sort of business as usual that Scott Morrison and his Labor cohorts are keen to keep going. And that is a massive obstacle to actually taking this public health pandemic seriously. So one of the stories um, of a federal government workplace uh, where... Uh, people had previously, had always had very relaxed um, 
access to working from home arrangements. That was just how their local management worked. They knew the work get done. Um, you know, you need a day at home for whatever reason, fine, sweet, take it. You've got all your laptop or whatever. All of a sudden, once Scott Morrison decides that they have to show, no, it's business as usual, local management hardens up. And in the face of a pandemic, when you should be encouraging people to work from home, when that's a public health measure advocated by the WorkSafe authorities, all of a sudden you had local management just refusing point blank people's requests to work from home. You had immune compromised people in that workplace and it took a series of rebellions in staff meetings, um, you know, and, and insubordination and rebellion to impose that very basic public health measure. So people sort of ask, you know, well, and people can feel a bit overwhelmed about the, the, the scale of the thing. And the scale, you know, frankly, is beyond us, you know, we are going to get overwhelmed. But fighting while that tsunami of, of attacks on our health and on our welfare and on our conditions um, come through, um, you know, will save lives in the short term. And it also means at least, you know, like the worst thing in the world is not being totally done over by the system. The worst thing in the world is being totally done over by the system and no one raising a voice, no one raising a protest against that. And so, you know, we've had a series of workplaces, like, you know, we must have launched dozens of, um, of um, uh, you know, open letters, um, which is a very basic organising tool because you can find it in the Communist Party, the best work that they did back in the 30s. You can find it in the syndicalist tradition. And it's like, oh, it's only an open letter. How soft? Well, the point is it gets you a little band of troublemakers in a workplace. Okay, what are our demands? You get to talk about that and this will work. This will catch on. Oh, that's going a bit far, whatever. And then you take that around your workplace and you have a discussion with every person. It's a very effective organising tool that lets you map the workplace, you know, who's got some go, you know, who's scared, who's a suck for the boss or whatever. And then at least you formulated your demands and out of that, you know, like, I mean, early in the week it was, well, a lot of these small shonky employees are going to get 25000 bucks from the government in May as a, as a concession. That should all go to worker entitlements. Now, during the and that was popular during the week as the scale of the crisis intensified it's become more and more clear that you know it has to be a political demand as well of the government that they are going to have to step in but you know even like we haven't won all of these things but we've had like a you know a comrade in a uh, before and after school care um, place in new south wales or so, you know she she works for a private company in a public school doing uh, before and after school care you know, there's been no political activity there. She gets 61 signatures well, on a letter yeah. saying that um, the private employees of this company should be looked after by the government, um, just the same as the teachers should be looked after by the government. So at least, you know, at the very least, it's initiated a, a political discussion, industrial discussion of what the hell's going on. So there's a lot of those um, sort of stories, um, you know, circulating on the workers' organising resistance uh, page, um, and people should really check it out. Um, I mean, that, you know, there's a bunch of other things which, you know, people that, um, that we're in contact with, um, you know, workers at Qantas who, like, you know, the particular workers that we know aren't impacted right now by the rolling stand downs that have been implemented by Alan Joyce. And that not that a disgrace, by the way? We're all in it together, we keep being told. You look at the Qantas announcement and it's like, okay, no international flights, 60% cut in domestic flights, um, 10,000, sorry, 20,000 workers to have rolling stand downs. Basically, you lose 10 weeks pay between um, now and the end of May. And then for the shareholders, $200 million in dividend payment. Wait for it. Suspended until September. 
So they mm. still get their payday. You could pay every single worker who's been stood down 10,000 bucks with that, with that $200 million. So you get an idea of the sort of priorities. Anyway, so in that situation, for our comrades, it's a matter of trying to plant a flag of solidarity with those who are being affected and trying to gather your forces a bit for the even more uh, uh, stringent uh, measures, like the even more sweeping attacks which are to come. Anyway, that gives you a bit of a picture, but people should definitely check out the page for Workers Organising Resistance. And I think one of the things you flagged there, Jerem, about how people could do something and then the next day that seems like the not the right scale of thing to do or it might be that you've demanded it to the wrong person and it's not your boss anymore, it's the government or it's not just your workplace, it's the whole sector. But I think even then people should not feel like that was a waste of time because what we're doing and what we're encouraging people to do is to start talking about politics, to talk to their colleagues, to talk to the people in their communities around them, whoever they're in touch with, to say, you know, we need to start taking some action. And all of that builds a foundation to be able to do the next thing. So if you hadn't petitioned your boss, then you wouldn't be talking to your co-workers about joining a campaign that makes a demand on the government or whatever. So I think all of all everything that people are doing, it can feel like a kind of blizzard of activity um, for a lot of us at the moment. But I think holding on to the fact that we're organising and that people are talking to each other is really important. And and one element that sort of is the obvious elephant in the room, I guess, with workers organising is is the trade union movement. So I mean, Jerem's written pieces. Um, Kath has had years and years of experience of negotiating with the official kind of bureaucracy of the trade union movement. But to call their response slow and inadequate would be too generous, I think, at this point. So, Kath, do you want to say uh, anything about the union movement and why rank-and-file organising is sort of just more important than ever at this point? Yeah, I think it's really clear that it's workers uh, on on the shop floor right now. Not well. I mean, it's always the case that it's actually workers who have power. Um, you know, we it's it's kind of a necessary evil in a way to have union officials, to have people who can negotiate, who aren't going to get immediately stood down or whatever. But the reality is that the real thing that means that unions have power is that they are made up of working class people people who just by refusing to work can bring profit making to a stop you know we talk about how you know this system is based on profits and you know cash is king all of these things but it's actually workers who have the greatest ability to challenge any of that and so i think when you start with that understanding it's pretty logical and obvious that the most important people who need to be organized and who we need to be organizing with are um, our own workmates and the reality is uh, some unions, I think, have had a pretty disgraceful um, action. Again, some of the things that we're hearing uh, from people in the the Workers' Organising Resistance Action Group um, is that, you know, there was one, one um, you know, public sector worker whose union official uh, actually got so sick of, of getting calls and uh, having workers agitating around health and safety and having being demanded to actually support uh, workers' health and safety uh, that the organiser turned around and said, I will just follow up your team leader. 
just talk to your team leader and, and your health and safety reps, um, you know, and, and indicated basically that, that whatever the they were doing was enough to keep things safe in the workplace but then the actual organizer was refusing to go out to these workplaces because it was unsafe um you know there was a pretty shocking story uh that came up of you know there was a teacher um in Adelaide who you know when pushing the union to do more uh and was pushing for school closures which I think we're going to talk about later uh, a union organiser wrote back and said, we have a, quote, solidarity pact uh, with the federal branch of the union who want us to stand uh, by Scott Morrison's position. Um, like, this is totally insane, um, but actually not totally new. Uh, you know, the union bureaucracy is trying to stand in the way of workers organising. Um, so I think where people can put pressure on their unions, um, that's important. There have been people who've successfully passed motions, who've successfully um, got their unions to back them in important campaigns. Um, but it's important, like the that pressure that we can put on the union officials to make them do the right thing is only going to happen if we are actually agitating. If it's not just one of us calling the union and saying, do this, or calling the boss and saying, fix that but actually organising with a number of us, that, that, that starts to represent a plausible threat. Um, and I think, yeah, organising in that kind of collective way. And it's the way at the moment that, that we're seeing games be won. Like there's, there's not all of these games that have just come from some union official negotiating with a boss. All of the stories that, that Jerem and I were talking about, this is just people organising in their workplaces for the most basic things. Liam? Uh, I just want to, uh, it seems to me in, in some ways we're paying for the sort of the legacy, we're up against the legacy of our previous defeats and failings in so many ways, most obviously in terms of, um, you know, like union activism and membership is, is not where we needed it to be at the start of all this, you know, like we're, we're, you know, up against a big, we're trying to move a mountain. Uh, but also that, um, I'm thinking of a particular case in my workplace where there's, it's a big workplace and a lot of the services have been outsourced, you know, so that should be probably a familiar story to listeners those outsourced workers often sit in the same room uh, doing the same work as people who are direct employees but have fewer rights. And so one of the things that came up for us was that um, these outsourced workers have been told that they don't have any kind of pandemic leave at all. And in the case, in, and in the case that our workplace shuts down, they essentially get sacked. Uh, so they're, and their union uh, has basically told them to suck it up. Um, so they came, those workers approached our union, like a, a separate union with a main, main union that covers the direct employees, you know, um, and we're trying now to organize some kind of uh, solidarity, some way of putting pressure on, um, on our management to at least, you know, make, make a public statement to promise something better, but even that probably won't, you know, like what we're really aiming for is to try to build some kind of solidarity with those outsourced workers to say, well, if you work in this shop, in this, in this workplace, uh, we all have the same rights and the same entitlements and we're not going to let uh, people uh, be thrown on a scrap heap just because of uh, because they're you know technically there's, there's a middleman between our employer and them. Um, so yeah, that that sort of historic abil- inability to defeat outsourcing and the parceling up of our workplaces has then stowed up these other problems that now we have to bloody deal with in the middle of the pandemic as well. If, if I can add to that, um, I think that's a really important point. Like I think there's uh, probably three aspects to the uh, actually pretty terrible uh, response of most official union structures and one is just being overwhelmed 
The second is, is much more important, I think, which is Liam's uh, point, where it, it, because most unions are starting from a very low base of worker organising, there are very few health and safety reps, for instance. It's one of the few legal rights that Australian worker, workers have is to elect health and safety representatives from the workers with legal powers to stop unsafe work from happening. Now, outside of construction and a, and a, and a handful of other industries, it's very rare to find effective health and safety structures. These have just been allowed to decay uh, by the unions over many years. So when this uh, crisis hits, the unions are extremely badly equipped to deal with it. I think there's a third factor as well, though, which is important to draw out. Unions are contradictory institutions. They're workers' organisations. They're the best organisations that we've got. Every decent, um, you know, thing to do with working life and working conditions, you know, have been won by unions uh, taking collective action. They're also creatures of capitalism. They exist within the system. They exist within a very powerful legal uh, and, and political framework that they have to survive in, you know, down the decades. And that has a conservatising effect. And that, that contradiction between, on the one hand, there are workers' organisations. On the other hand, they're bound within the logic of the capitalist system in many ways. When a crisis hits, that contradiction, um, like, it really pushes the, the unions in a conservative direction. Um, we saw that earlier this year with the bushfires, to be honest, um, when, you know, around 100,000 people around Australia turned out on the 10th of January uh, to protest against Scott Morrison's uh, criminal inaction, um, you know, on, on climate change, on equipping firefighters, um, all the rest of it. The unions were nowhere to be seen and, in fact, um, were saying, oh, this, this is a crisis for the system, this is not the time to take action. Our response as socialists is, this is a crisis for the system, this is precisely the time where it's the most important to take action. Um, so I think this is one of those occasions where, um, you know, having socialist politics, having a, a clear analysis of the system um, and how it works, and so your first instinct isn't, oh, it's a crisis, oh, my God, you know, better sort of hide for a while or just keep your bunker down and hope it passes over. It's a crisis. It's like, great. How do we gather? Well, not great. It's not great. How do we gather our forces and push back against it and organise to resist it? Um, so anyway, I think that's an important point to draw out as well. The, I mean, well, we're, we're sort of running low on time, but like it, the, the, there's, yeah, anyway, I've been going through the health union uh, Facebook pages and when you log on to the Australian Nursing Federation, AN, Australian Nursing and Midwife uh, Federation, their Facebook page, in the middle of a pandemic crisis, I was looking last night, and the first item they've got is whinging about the federal government letting international nursing students work 40 hours instead of 20 hours. Are you serious? This is the best that a mate, Australia's biggest union, in fact, can come out with? And then the second thing, like the big issue, as, uh, as Kath uh, referenced, is masks. There's a bit of blather dot point about we demand access to the national stockpile. Like the national stockpile is, like, is, is frankly totally insufficient and there's no emergency measures coming. And then there's, like, there's an item which is basically a press release for the federal government with these glowing quotes. This is on the Nurses Federation uh, Facebook page, these glowing quotes about uh, from the Defence Minister, the Liberal Party Defence Minister, talking about Aussie ingenuity will see us through. And don't worry, we've got 12 Australian defence personnel helping out some company in Shepparton to make a few more masks somewhere down the road. 
Like, and this, like, so in terms of an official response, don't wait for the unions. Organise yourselves. Get them involved. Keep them in, 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 yes, we want to operate through those channels. Don't wait for them. Our I think really the pernicious argument that we're hearing more and more, we're hearing on all sides of politics, all bosses, anyone who wants to um, keep the system of inequality and barbarity that is capitalism afloat is using the phrase, we're all in this together. I think workers have to reject that. They have to reject that immediately. And this is not, we're all in this together. Fucking Alan Joyce with his $24 million that he's not got this year, but he'll, that he's got, every other year before could pay every one of those workers, every one of those 20,000 workers could be maintained on their current salaries or more even um, just out of his wealth and it would be like pocket change to the rest of us. So we're all in this together is a way of trying to hide those class divisions and the unions often will, the union bureaucracies, as we've said, will just buy into that same bullshit um, messaging. So Let's talk about what we've got coming up in the next few days because I think we're probably going to have to come back um, to this topic on the podcast. So uh, things are moving rapidly. One of the things that teachers, teach workers who are teachers on the page and workers who are parents have been agitating for is the closure of schools. So we're organising on Monday, the 23rd of March, a boycott of schools, a national boycott in Australia, a group of workers. Um, uh, organising this. So, Kath, can you tell us a bit more about this action, who's involved, who supports it, and why people are thinking this is a really important, immediate demand for all of us? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's one of the most obvious and necessary social distancing measures that we need right now. Schools are one of the biggest places where we've got large numbers of people gathering. Like, what is the point in having bans on 100 people gathering when you have schools of, you know, more than 100 people, you know, regularly, regularly interacting, walking through, using the same buildings, you know, often with children um, who, you know, you know, we know are, are less good at all of the, you know, basic kind of self-hygiene um, um, stuff. Like these are pretty dangerous workplaces. Um, in Adelaide, there's already been um, a student-to-teacher transmission of COVID-19 a lot of teachers are also quite a bit older, um, so are in, in that high-risk category. Um, schools absolutely need to be shut down, and I think that there's a lot of deliberate misinformation from the government around this. They want to keep schools open, not because they have any you know, commitment to education. Where are they when we want to demand better public education or better funding? No, this is purely about keeping the economy going. They care about profits and they do not care about our health. They do not care about our lives. They do not care if we die. It's actually not that different from the response we saw around the, the bushfires and the total lack of um, any serious uh, response from the government. Um, so given um, the kind of lack of uh, health uh, initiatives that have been introduced in Australia, shutting down schools at this point is an absolute necessity. So this idea came about uh, from initially from teachers who were campaigning in their schools, uh, but also parents um, who were agitating in you know, various parents and friends committees and, and school boards. Um, importantly, 
Uh, we've had some really great support uh, from uh, Greg Hunt, who was the doctor who initiated um, an open letter with 2,500. Greg Hunt. That's the health You're minister. Of the minister yeah. No, something <laughs> of the minister. Yeah, Greg Hunt is, is He's on the other team. Yeah. No, um, the doctor who's initiated uh, 2,500 um, other doctors to sign an open letter saying that schools need to be shut down. I mean, this is what the health experts are saying. Uh, while Jerem was is right about the ANMF generally, it's been really positive that the ANMF branch in Tasmania has been prepared to, to go out and actually say, no, we do need um, to shut down schools. Uh, nurses there have been really pissed off that they've been used as kind of pawns as an excuse to keep uh, the schools open, that the government say, oh, well, if we close the schools, what's going to happen uh, to our healthcare workers? Um, but actually, there's, 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 for, every, for every problem that they put up about why we can't have school closures, there's an obvious solution um, or there's, there's an obvious way of kind of, I think, busting that, that myth or that mistruth. Uh, the kind of first one that people talk about is kids aren't affected that badly uh, by the virus. Well, actually, like we should be pretty clear. This is a new virus. We're learning about it as we go. Just a few days ago, the World Health Organization put out information that this virus can be can make some uh, particularly young children extremely ill, uh, and that was information we we didn't have before. So that's like a issue that should be taken quite seriously. But also that we know that kids have been carriers of the the illness, um, precisely because of some of the hygiene stuff that, that we talked about earlier. Um, so they're a risk to the workers in those schools. They're a risk to everyone they're catching public transport with to get to these schools. Um, it's, a, it's a risk to the whole community um, having uh, the schools open. Um, there's been some talk that, you know, in Singapore um, that there's been success without school closures. But that is a much smaller uh, population and a much higher level of testing kits that were made available in Singapore. They had, um, you know, hand sanitization units all of, you know, across, you know, throughout um, public spaces. At schools, they had temperature checks so that they could send kids who were uh, sick home. Really importantly, they had lots of testing, as I was saying, and also really like thorough contact tracing. Both of those measures are extremely limited in Australia. So these other social distancing measures, we're almost too late. Like we have to do this now. We're, we're behind. Um, there's, yeah, the talk of um, closures reducing um, the, the health workforce, this is crap. The government can totally um, fund and support the special provisions for the children of, of healthcare workers. You can have small-scale classrooms and childcare um, available that means that that those those workers are still able to do their work, um, and importantly, they need. This is part of what we another element that we need paid pandemic leave for. So people who um, have school age children should be given unlimited pandemic. Well, everyone needs access to unlimited pandemic leave, um, and one of the things that they should be able to use that for is staying home or working from home in order to to look after. Um, their their children like every myth that they try to put up um, obviously casual teachers all school workers should have guaranteed payments as should all workers who are impacted um, by this crisis the real reason that they want um, the schools open is purely about protecting uh, their profits um, 
So, so, within, so yeah. what are we asking people to do for this? So, so the, the biggest thing is that from this Monday, we want parents and students and teachers and school workers, everyone to, by whatever means they can, stay away from school. It is an unsafe workplace. It is totally legitimate to not go into work when it cannot be safe. And we know schools cannot be safe. Um, lot, lots actually already parents are taking the initiative to do this. Um, the, the, the numbers sort of vary from state to state, but it looks like about 30% um, of parents or 30% of students are not going to schools. We're hearing already of high absentee of teachers as well. Um, we, so we, we want this to continue and to escalate. We want everyone to take their, their to stop going to school. We want parents in particular um, to, to, you know, work with their children um, to refuse to go to school uh, from Monday. And it has to go on indefinitely. Um, and this is and a campaign. And for people this, week, this weekend to promote that, I think, is probably the most yeah. immediate thing. So there's an event on the war page. There's, twit, there's um, tweets to share around. There's a lot of people saying the same thing. So it's really a question of trying to coordinate that um, and to spread the word because I think yeah. if... There's enough people, and we can get some media attention. Then this could actually make a huge difference. Totally. Um, we're going to have to finish up in a second, but Jerem, there's one other thing to um, invite people along to, which we're experimenting with, an online public meeting on Sunday night. That's Do you want right. to tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So uh, people can. It's called live stream panel. Coronavirus, casual workers, and mass sacking. So if you put that into your Facebook uh, findy thing, you should be able to locate it. Live stream panel. Coronavirus, casual workers, and mass sackings. And we're having uh, both an overview of the colossal crisis which the world is plunging into, um, uh, both medically. And economically, and then we're going to hear some stories from the front line in terms of workers, uh, mainly young workers and casualised industries who have been affected by that just in the last week, and their stories of organising uh, for survival, for public health, and for dignity. So um, we, everyone should definitely it'll be yeah, people should definitely tune in to that one, seven o'clock Sunday night coronavirus, casual workers and mass sackings and jump on the workers organising resistance against the pandemic uh, page and uh, discussion group as well, or action group as well. And all the links for all of those are in the in the notes for the show. So uh -huh. listeners on any platform should be able to just click directly through. Okay, Kath um, and Jerem and Liam, I know we're all extremely busy at the moment, but thank you for being part of Red Flag Radio. And Thank you, comrades. And Thanks, comrades. Keep fighting. World to win. Um, we have a world to win. You're listening to Red Flag Radio.